Kyle, thanks so much for joining Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we welcome Dr. Connie Gill, who is Professor and Director of Women's Reproductive Behavioral Health Division at the Medical University of South Carolina. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. Just like every other MUSC interview that we've done, you're doing incredible work on things that people need to know more about, and so you're working with perinatal psychiatry. And then you have a couple of really innovative programs, including the impact program. You have a new one coming up in March of 2022, the perinatal psychiatry access program. And then you're also working on better detection. So why don't you tell us, start out by why is perinatal psychiatry such an important thing to be focused on? Sure. Um, Yeah, just so important background about this is that uh, these conditions, looking at perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and perinatal substance use disorders, are incredibly common. So one in five women will experience this over the course of pregnancy and the postpartum year. Um, We know that these conditions have an enormous impact on mom's health. In fact, uh, unfortunately, we're we're learning more and more in looking at maternal mortality. When we follow women through the full pregnancy and postpartum year, we're finding that suicide and drug overdose actually combine to be one of the leading causes of maternal mortality. We also know that there's a huge amount of morbidity associated with these conditions in terms of mom's obstetric health, increased risk for things like preterm birth, low birth weight. Um, And these conditions also have a huge impact on on children's development, um, which we see very early on and extending into adolescence. So, you know, just the fact that these are very common conditions, um, they have a huge impact on, on women's health and family's health. Um, that's really where this step specialty came from. And it also really came from this context where um, oftentimes when uh, patients who have psychiatric illnesses uh, become pregnant, the psychiatrist says, you're no longer my patient. And they become the, the OBGYN's patient. And then the OBGYN says, well, I don't really know how to treat mental health conditions. And so women are often kind of in this position where uh, they have a lot of questions, they have a lot of concerns, and they don't really have the support that they need to be able to make good decisions. And so uh, reproductive psychiatry or perinatal psychiatry really came in to to fill that niche and and void. And and Connie, uh, this is so fascinating because you often find that the most interesting things are happening at the nexus of of two amazing fields. So perinatal psychology, uh, amazing. How long has this been uh, sort of a thing, if we could say it that way? Uh, Probably a lot longer than most of us realize. But uh, if our audience is anything like us, they're probably scratching their heads thinking, wow, this is really fascinating. If you could give us a little glimpse into that, as well as what have the trends been over that time? We understand from what you're saying that this is very ubiquitous, but is it also worsening and growing? Uh, and, and if so, then what's leading to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, these conditions actually were written about in the mid 1800s by Marseille. So there was like a 300 uh, women case series on melancholia after childbirth. And it really wasn't until uh, late 1980s, early 1990s that um, even uh, postpartum depression made it into the DSM, our kind of diagnostic statistical manual for mental health conditions. Um, and it's it's even it's not even a, an actual diagnosis; it's a, it's a course specifier. So it's major depression with peripartum onset of these illnesses. 
So it really wasn't until then that they started to be more acknowledged. Um, and then really in the past um, 20 years, you see more and more people kind of doing this work. And then in the past 10 years, uh, I think that the field has really just grown exponentially where you're seeing um, now there's fellowships in reproductive psychiatry. There's a national curriculum that's written and publicly available um, for people to actually get this training. Um, so it's really becoming a, a field in and of itself. But it's taken a long time to get here. And I, I think your other question was, you know, are these conditions getting worse and, you know, what's kind of contributing to them? Um, so, you know, I, I did mention how common they were. Uh, we have seen in the pandemic, there's actually been a doubling of rates of mood of anxiety conditions in this population, which is not surprising because stressful life events are a, a really important factor in, in depression in general, um, but certainly for this population as well. You mentioned before when we were doing the pre-interview that you were really proud of your detection efforts and you have a text messaging program to try to identify some of these things. Is that something that came out of the pandemic or is that something else that you saw a need and just really wanted to fill that niche? So tell us how the text messaging works and how that's been helping your results. Yeah, that actually came out through some research, um, some qualitative research where we sit down with women um, that have these conditions and don't have these conditions and really just try to understand from their perspective what's needed. And then we did something similar with providers too. So OBGYN providers and pe pediatric providers. And so what came from it is um, this, this system that we developed to really fill a lot of gaps in screening and detection and getting people to treatment. And what it, it's called listening to women because it came out of those key informant interviews. Um, and essentially it's a text messaging system that uh, asks those questions about mental health and substance use and intimate partner violence. And all that information goes to our care coordinator who can easily reach out to that woman via phone, do a brief uh, assessment of her needs from social determinants of health to mental health conditions and get her um, set up with treatment and actually does that brief intervention to motivate them to get to treatment. So when we use that system and we compare it to what we call the standard of care. So standard of care is doing that screening in person and referring that woman to treatment. We find that people that are enrolled in that listening to women system are two times more likely to endorse these problems of mood, anxiety, substance use, intimate partner violence. They're also um, one and a half times more likely to be referred to treatment and five times more likely to make it to treatment in comparison to the standard of care. So we're really, really excited about um, this project and, and results. But does the fact that people are more willing to share these things and you're looking at things like substance abuse, domestic violence, um, domestic partner violence, things like that, that you're screening them for, does it show you maybe that they're, they are looking for help and they're just not, there's some, some barrier doing it face to face, but whenever you start out with the text message that you can sort of ease them into that and get to the point that they're doing in-person or video treatment or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the mechanism of action is, who knows what it is, but we, we have pretty consistently seen that when you are asking about more um, uh, stigmatized behaviors, um, people are much more likely to endorse those uh, via some sort of computer application or where there's just another, another barrier between you and a person that could be standing in front of you judging you. So it's just that, that I think it's just that judgment that like face to face, like you are going to be judging me in this moment. Um, that really is a big deterrent to endorsing these issues. 
I think it's also how it's asked. Um, you know, I, I've heard people ask women things like, you know, you don't use drugs or alcohol, do you? You don't feel depressed. You don't, you don't want to kill yourself or your baby, right? Okay. Yes. And, you know, in a text message, you're very clear and very, very behaviorally specific focused. And so you, you're asking the right questions. Yeah, it's, it's standardized, basically, right? You have the advantage of a lot of people looking at the questions in advance and thinking of the best way to ask that question. So mm -hmm. I, I really do find this really fascinating. You said listening to women. So that's uh, uh, amazing. As, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking of if you've already partnered or thinking about partnering uh, uh, with, with the approach you're having with social media listening as well. Uh, in our work as, as consultants in the healthcare field, we uh, often find that, for example, with, with the veteran population uh, that uh, are at risk for suicidality, that you can often pick up some of the patterns and the trends through uh, listening to, to their social media interactions. And so that's not necessarily directly with the healthcare system, but with each other. Is that uh, come into play here for, for women in this stage as well? We actually, we have not specifically done that. Um, I have seen that in other areas. I think it's a really powerful tool um, and has a lot of potential, especially, you know, for this kind of circumscribed group, they do join a lot of online forums and chats and, and social media. So it, it could potentially be a really great place um, to kind of identify people and bring them into care. I do think that that could be very interesting. It sounds like you're going to be exploring things like that. Uh, when, when, you know, the other thing that I was interested in, as you were talking earlier, is uh, have you been able to to study the impact of the work uh, well enough to know that with the we know what doesn't what happens over the natural course of uh, of what the women are going through, uh, but then with the intervention, is there enough evidence that shows that with based on the kinds of treatments and therapies you're bringing to folks that it is able to make an impact short term and long term? So we just started looking at um, some of the short-term data. And so what we've seen, we haven't published this yet, but what we're seeing is that when we first have women um, fill out their depressive symptoms and then they follow, we, we don't just do this once, we do them, we do it actually each trimester of pregnancy, one month after delivery and every three months to 12 months postpartum. And so what we see is when we compare um, that kind of baseline depressive symptoms to a follow-up assessment, there is a significant reduction in depressive symptoms, which is really, to your point, the most important part of this, that women are getting well, not just getting to treatment. Um, and so we're seeing that there. We need to do some more work in looking at other really important outcomes like maternal functioning and, and relationships and well-being and how people are doing. But so far, some of the preliminary work looks really exciting. With the work that you're going to start doing in March 2022 with the perinatal psychiatry access program, you said that people will be able to actually get in and could have an appointment, I'm presuming, by phone or video with a psychiatrist and get and or get connected to other um, professionals in the field. So tell us, how does that work and how is that speed? How are you hopeful that that speed of service is going to make a difference for these people? Yeah, so I mean, luckily, this is actually taking part. These perinatal psychiatry access programs exist in about 10 other states, and there's about 10 states that are trying to implement them. So we're really fortunate in that we just get to follow the experts that have already done this and implemented it. 
And what these programs um, look like is you need to have a, a capacity of providers, obviously that can take care of these women um, and a care coordinator. And what you make available to women is just very easily pick up the phone and call this number. And this care coordinator is gonna do this brief assessment, figure out what your needs are from social determinants of health to just mental health substance use, and then get you set up with resources that are potentially in your state, as well as this kind of um, group of providers that I, I spoke about. Um, and the goal is really to get people seen quickly. So within 30 minutes, this woman is speaking to a psychiatrist that can at least do an initial evaluation and figure out what's what's next best steps in her treatment and maybe even continue that treatment for her or get her hooked up with somebody else that um, would be a better fit for her needs. The, the other part of that perinatal psychiatry access program and, and where it was really started um, was it actually in Massachusetts and they started with providers. So it was, it was a phone call that a, a provider could make um, about a patient that they were seeing. And so through that model, you're really kind of training and teaching providers how to take care of this population. So they can make this phone call, they get a consult from a reproductive psychiatrist that helps them with next steps. So those two together, I think are really important because we need to build capacity. We need more people to be able to care for this population and we need to get women services now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, Connie. I, I'm glad you brought in the other provider angle of how they refer in. in generally, as you were, you were talking about this, you were talking about how uh, deep of an issue this is, how long it's been in, in a problem and it continues to grow. Uh, and, and yet uh, there's so many people that are entering into the space now uh, within, within a setting of overall scarcity of personnel. And so the question that was kind of, you know, uh, rattling around in my brain is, so are you finding enough people? Are they, do they all have to be doctors? Can some of them be therapists, uh, nurse practitioners and, and the like? Uh, maybe you can comment a little bit on the staffing models to make sure that the, the growing needs are actually being met. Yeah, then that's a great point. And um, so I, as a reproductive psychiatrist, that makes sense that I've you know built a program with more psychiatrists. That's just um, what I'm familiar with and, and what I know. But 100% of the women that we see, we're offering therapy to. I mean, that really is your first line treatment. Um, and so psychiatrists can deliver that, psychologists can, um, uh, LISWs, social workers, um, LPCs who are licensed um, professional counselors, um, can get additional training in this area. A great organization is um, Postpartum Support International that actually has uh, extra training for, for folks, for professionals that wanna do this work. So there's increasingly more and more people that have this certification, do this work. We have tons of, we have a, a fantastic lift serve of just thousands of people that are, are continuing to kind of consult each other and, and do this work. There's a national curriculum um, for how to get more training on this work so that the uh, workforce in this area is definitely growing, which is great. And holistic uh, alternative integrated sort of medicine type issues as well, meditation, mindfulness, CBT, wow. is that all of that helpful? Absolutely. So there's um, there's some decent data on some nutraceuticals, some supplements, things like folate. Um, there's uh, some good data on any sort of like physical activity, yoga, exercise. 
a um, little bit on meditation. That's a little bit mixed, but I, I honestly, I, whatever works for somebody, you know, if, if somebody says that, you know, meditating every single day or exercising or works for me, great. That's, you know, we don't need to have wonderful, robust data to, to support that. We do, if we want insurances to cover it, but, um, but otherwise, you know, like people should use the things that really speak to them and work well. Today is actually the six year anniversary that my daughter got home from the NICU and now she's six and happy. And her biggest concern is where Elf on the Shelf is today. <laughs> and thank goodness for that. But I actually, my neo, or her neonatologist referred me to you at one point and I didn't end up needing your services. But it was just such a challenge to go through some of the anxiety that you deal with when you have a kid in the NICU, because I mean, first of all, you have the super real anxiety of like, is this baby and fear, is this baby going to live or die? You, you really just don't know. And in her case, we really didn't know. And then whenever you get closer and you start to get to the, the easier stuff of like, okay, we're now just feeding and growing. Okay. This baby's going to come home. She has a monitor. She has caffeine that has to be dosed exactly 24 hours apart. And if it's not, it's detrimental to her heart and all these things that become terrifying. The field that you're doing is so important. The work that you're doing within that field. And then obviously MUSC's support of this is not surprising at all. They built the beautiful new women's and children's hospital and they're so focused on all areas of women's health, which is really impressive. And it's clear that you're committed to that. And so along the lines of, you know, finding what works for you, I'd love to know how you found this work and why it's for you. Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, well, I, I think I always knew I was going to be in mental health and women's health. Um, but it was when I was finding those patients that their psychiatrist kind of when they became pregnant, left the scene and they weren't getting very good information or advice from anybody else. And I just felt like that is, you know, I think we don't support women in a lot of ways and particularly during the perinatal period. And this felt like, oh, this is, this is something that I could actually help with because the research in this area is, it's a little bit difficult to, we don't do these randomized control trials in pregnancy and women for a long time were excluded from trials. And so I felt that with my skill set, I could take some complex literature and kind of translate it so that women could understand it and that they could make informed treatment choices about what they were doing in this time period, a really critical time period. So, um, and, and I, you know, so I, I just felt like it was something where I, I, could, I really could support women uh, during a critical time period. And so it's been, yeah, just incredibly fulfilling. And, you know, having my own children after, you know, I was already kind of in this field and then having my children just solidify that, oh my gosh, <laughs> we need to be doing even more than what I thought we needed to be doing. Connie, I really appreciate your story. So, you know, one thing that I was thinking, if, if I have to frame a, a last thought on this is, it's such a brief period of time during which we think we're going to be intervening that perinatal period. It must be so challenging to reach the women, right? So it must be really difficult to communicate the message, get the message out to enough people so that when they need the service at the right time, they're able to get it. Maybe you can comment a little bit on, on that part of the challenge. Yeah. Well, so th what's interesting is that, um, you know, a lot of women coming into pregnancy don't have health insurance. So they have, you know, 
coming into pregnancy is actually the optimal time to identify these issues. They're gonna see a healthcare provider on average 26 times over pregnancy in the postpartum year, and they have health insurance. So it really is an opportunity to address past mental health issues, current mental health issues, um, but I think that there are, so there, there's opportunities to do that, but there's barriers to not do it. There's a huge amount of stigma that's associated with these conditions. And as a, as a woman um, and as a mother, there's even more judgment and stigma. So it's just kind of this extra layer. Um, I feel like the more that people know about this and the more that they talk about it from a patient perspective and say, you know, I experienced this, the more that it's normalized, the more that our providers normalize it and ask women this during their uh, their routine care, you know, we're going to monitor your blood pressure and your mood. Like that's just what we do during this time. I think those will those things will ultimately really help to destigmatize these conditions, and hopefully, people will, will ask for more help when they need it. After you become a mom or a mom multiple times, I feel like there's so many things from like the mommy wine culture to you know all of the, the Pinteresting, does it cause more conflict for these moms that you're seeing? Like, do they feel this pressure to be perfect or do they feel this pressure? Do they end up drinking more wine because that's what moms are supposed to do? And they, it does go down a bad road if they have a tendency towards addiction. You know, like how does that cultural perception of moms and what moms should be or what moms are play into what you're seeing in your work in that initial year? Yeah. Oh gosh, that's such a complicated question. Um, I said I should have thought of it before. <laughs> Sorry about that for the end. No, that's okay. But you know, there there is this major role transition, right? You are becoming a new person and a new identity as a mother and a new relationship with a child and your partner and your family. So there is so much transition. And so, and we don't talk about that. We don't help talk about like, what's the best way to do that? What's the best way to do that for you? Like we don't even call it out, right? So I think people are looking around them saying, what, what do I do here, right? And so you might latch onto something that maybe looks normal and you're attracted to like a wine culture or whatever. Um, and I think it really depends on the individual. So what, 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 do you, what do you think this role is supposed to look like and what are you susceptible to? Um, so it's really variable. I wouldn't say the population we work with is any different than anybody else. Um, you know, we're, we're, I think everyone's trying to figure out this role transition and trying to figure out what works best for them. It's, it's hard because it's, there's not a lot of attention to it. There's not a lot of support in it. Um, and ultimately women feel judged for whatever they do. If they do it exceedingly well or exceedingly terrible, they will be judged. And so is that something that you have to manage in your practice, just trying to get over the, don't worry about the judgment, just do what's right for you and what's right for your baby. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, what I often talk about is just look at the job that you're doing, right? So here's this job where it's 24 seven, you know, every single day, there's no breaks. Your needs are totally put aside. You don't get paid. You don't get a thank you. You don't get, I mean, what I, what I tell women is like, I come to work because it's easier than, than actually being a full-time parent. Right. I mean, tongue in cheek, keep kidding a little bit, but here's the hardest job ever. And here is the judgment that is just constant in your life. You know, like this isn't a problem with you. This is a problem with our culture and the way that our culture does not support 
what these women are doing. Um, and so when you kind of turn it around and help women see what it, an amazing thing that they're doing and what an amazing job they're doing and the, the lack of support that they're given, um, they can kind of put those judgments aside and be like, I don't really care what these people think because they're out to lunch. You know, like it just makes it a lot easier for them. So um, I, I think having those conversations is helpful. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. And I think it shows the, the fact that our conversation has gone everything from, you know, the actual treatments to the field, to the success you're having, to the judgments of women. There's so much to talk about in this field. We could probably have nine conversations with you. So we really appreciate you hanging in with us and just jumping all around for your entire field. It has been so fun. I've loved talking with you both. And yeah, thanks so much for your attention to this topic and um, great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all those insights, Connie. Much appreciated. Anytime. Thank you all for watching. Bye-bye.